Howdy there, folks. It's me, Heather, back with another installment of my audiobook podcast, Strike Boat on Substack. Today is January 7th, 2022. We are one week into this beautiful new year. So sit back and get comfy and enjoy listening to episode two of my novel, Strike Boat. In a big white late 90s Buick, which was at that same moment heading south on Highway 6 down the Bruce Peninsula, Jim and Norma Olofsson were driving into Wyerton, Ontario to get coffee. To their left, the land sloped down to the edge of Georgian Bay. The sun was rising, the first warm rays of the day falling on Jim's cheek, while glorious shades of crimson and orange fell on the sparkling waters. To the right of the vehicle, a craggy rock wall rose vertically, flat where the engineers of the past had drilled dynamite and blasted the roadway out of the hillside. The two of them were squabbling. Norma felt like Jim was being uncompromising, as usual. For her part, Norma had come to him with what she felt was a fantastic idea. She wanted to bump out the wall of their kitchen and build on a little sunroom, let in the light she'd always wanted but Jim had responded unfavorably, griping about the cost and disruption. Norma was still mad, and she had let him know it. You're a big stupid oaf, she said, and then gasped. A terrible tremor rippled the ground underneath the Buick. Instinctively, Norma reached over and grasped for Jim's hand on the center console, but he was already responding. He downshifted the Buick and braked, casting a cursory glance in the rear view to make sure there was no one behind them. The Buick ground to a halt, the boat of its body bouncing on its shocks as the front wheels came to rest just before the start of the bridge. To Jim's left, there was a guardrail, one that had been built to protect drivers from drop-offs because the fall to the water on that side was steep in that stretch at the Wyerton town line. The Buick came to a halt at what just happened to be the narrowest point on the whole Bruce Peninsula, the apex of an inlet where the water knifed inland. Jim stared at the road ahead of them, unable at first to comprehend what he was seeing. The surface of the bridge heaved as though a great elephant just underneath the skin of the pavement had rolled over in its sleep. As Jim watched, the bridge rippled upwards again and then settled visibly lower than the Buick's front tires. Jim didn't like that dip in the road, only inches in front of the car. In fact, he was starting to get a pretty bad feeling about it indeed. It looked saggy, not solid. He didn't trust it, especially not after what he'd just seen. He shifted into park, scrubbed a hand along his jaw so that the rasp of his stubble was audible. Then he looked at his wife. Get out of the car, he said to her calmly. He unbuckled his seatbelt. She gaped at him, frozen. He had a sense of time stretching, of the significance of that moment being of utmost importance. He reached over and hit the button on her seatbelt. It slid smoothly back into the side mount, and Jim looked at her firmly in the eye. There was gentleness there the anger of the morning's fight, forgotten. Norma, we need to get out of the car now, love. Can you get your door open? Norma was terrified. The tremor they had felt, 
the way the surface of the roadway had undulated. There was terror flapping around in her mind, but she had been married to this man since the 80s, and they were connected on a far deeper level than where her panic was currently flailing. Yes. She blinked a few times, forcing herself to focus on the love that was in his eyes. She would hold on to that, she decided. Yes, I can do that. All right, then. Let's go. They both pulled the handle on their car doors and climbed out. She looked at him questioningly over the rooftop. Where? He pointed to the craggy rock wall rising up from the side of the road, a small way behind the car. Back there, he said, and they went. There was a sound like the breaking of teeth. Norma recalled fleetingly how a boy that she had dated in college used to grind his teeth and how it had sounded just like that in the night. That sound had been awful, horrific, but this was worse. Similar, but worse, because it was amplified a thousandfold. Jim stared at that dip in the road where a thin black line had appeared in the sagging gray flesh of the asphalt, a crack traveling the width of both lanes in front of the Buick. Suddenly, and without warning, it widened. There was no other way to describe it. The hairline crack at the Georgian Bay side of the road widened, like the jaws of an alligator opening up to take a large bite of the bay, and then snaked across, splitting the road like a zipper. The saggy gray flesh of the road fell away. When the fissure reached the rock wall, it stopped. Another terrible rumble sounded from beneath them. In the place where the dip in the blacktop had been, the road was now gone. Through the gap, they could see the various layers of substrate that made up the base of the roadbed on the other side of what was now the divide. And then the front tires of the Buick dropped over the edge so that the car sat precarious on the ledge of a jagged outcropping. The angle was shockingly steep. They watched in fascination as the Buick's nose dipped even further then the car tilted back towards normal, dipped again, then tilted back, then tipped straight up vertical and went down, crashing and clanging its way to the bottom before plunging with a splash into the water. Jim, if you hadn't braked, we'd be dead, he said, nodding. He left her side, unthreading his fingers from hers. He walked to the edge of the fissure. Peering over, he could see water down at the bottom of the divide, the arse end of the Buick poking up. He was about to tell Norma this when he heard her whimper. His eyes snapped over to her where she stood, and he saw that her face was white. With her eyes dulled by fear, she raised her arm and pointed to the place where the crack in the road met the rock wall just a few yards away from where she was standing. A series of pops and pings sounded. In her panic, Norma thought again of that young fellow. What was his name? Kevin or Calvin, she thought wildly, but his name didn't matter right now. All that mattered was that sound, that awful sound that he made in the night, his teeth grinding, pinging and popping, just like, why, just like the sound a crack makes traveling up through a rock wall. She said this lightly, almost dreamily, and then Jim was beside her, leading her further away as the crack in the rock wall suddenly rocketed upwards. The noise became louder as the crack shot to the top of the bluff and exploded. 
raining down boulders where she had been standing. They were thrown to the ground. Jim landed hard on his back, cradling Norma. His arms wrapped around her as he took the brunt of the impact. Even as they were in motion, his head turned, eyes on the crack in the rock face that was raining down fist-sized boulders that fell through the divide in the roadway. Some hit the Buick down below. They heard the thunk of rock hitting metal, and then the rear window shattered as a boulder the size of a bowling ball crashed through it. He pulled Norma to her feet, and they put some more distance between themselves and the rockfall. The stream of debris rained down. The crack in the rock face widened as larger and larger boulders poured out of it. The road on their side of the divide was now littered with them, two feet, three feet high, some of them, bouncing and skidding. Guess we won't be getting that coffee, Jim said, over the roar of it all, and Norma burst into tears. Neither of them realized it at that moment, but what had been a peninsula was now well on its way to becoming an island. Lodi James came out his front door and stood on the porch of his bungalow. He stood in the shade of the early morning under the awning and smelled the pot of geraniums blooming beside him, the basket a gift from his mother that hung suspended from a hook in the porch roof. He took a long, slow look at the dooryard, searching for anything amiss, and thought back to the events that had occurred in the middle of the night. He'd awoken in the dark of his bedroom, attuned to the sounds coming through the open window where the curtain ruffled slightly in the breeze. His ears, sharply focused, had picked up the sound of a furtive rustling coming from outside in the yard. Silent, he slid out of bed. Moving cat-like and stealthy, he had crossed through the modest bungalow and out the back door. Barefoot, he kept, crept through the wet grass and peered around the corner of the house. Quiet, he stood listening, his ears straining for the sound, and he heard it. There it was again, a furtive rustling that was coming from the direction of his chicken coop. Behind him, a backdrop of stars cascaded down to the horizon. Where he was, in the rural countryside, the darkness was complete. The sky was clear, the moon a thin crescent that gave off only the faintest of silvery light but it was enough. He waited for his eyes to adjust. Then he rounded the edge of the house and moved toward the coop. What he saw was a coyote. It was a big one, a large male that was poking its nose into the cracks in the crannies of the coop, searching for a way to get in at Lodi's chickens. Lodi drew up as close as he dared in the silence, and then he stood to his full height and adopted an aggressive demeanor. Get the fuck out of here, dickhead, he called out suddenly, his voice booming through the silence. The coyote bolted, taking off through the field, and Lode watched him go as far as he could before the absence of the light took him away. He squatted by the coop, checked it out, but from what he could see, the structure had held. For now, he had thought, and gone back to bed. He'd awoken with the sun, remembering the incident. Thoughts of bolstering up the coop were on his mind, tightening up the gaps, making it more secure, but this morning he had plans. There was a shiny blue tractor parked in his dooryard. The tractor was not his. He had borrowed it from his neighbor, 
Donald King, the wealthiest farmer around. The tractor was of a kind that Lodi himself was not yet able to afford. Farming was hard, he was finding. In getting started, it was more about money going out than it was about money coming in, but he was getting there. Slowly but surely, he was getting there, and he wasn't too proud to ask a neighbor to borrow a tractor if he needed to, because Lodi was a man that paid his debts. Eight years ago, he'd retired from the army and gone on a personal mission to avenge friends of his who had been killed by a cartel running illegal weapons outside Kandahar. Eight years, he had tracked a man named Gilles Doucette across Europe. Eight long years, and he'd always escaped him. But no matter how hard Lodi tried to keep up with the trail of dead bodies his quarry left behind him, he was always too late. That was what happened when the man you were chasing had more money and resources than you would ever imagine. No matter how far Lodi got, Doucette always won. He had access to the fastest cars, the fastest jets, you name it. If money could buy it, then Doucette could afford it in spades, whereas Lodi could not, and so Doucette had remained out of his grasp. But the things he had seen had started to sicken him. He'd come across crime scenes where the mutilated bodies of young women had been tortured, sadistically, sexually. It had hardened his heart, made him more certain than ever that the man he sought was a man that needed to get taken down. But the sustained assault on Lodi's soul that coming across Doucette's victims left him with had become more than he could carry for the moment. The time had come when Lodi had needed to come home. He needed a break. He needed to do some self-care, heal from his PTSD. And so when six months ago, his mother, Serafina, had called to tell him to come back to the farm, his home farm, in Mount Bridges, and take it over so that she and his father could retire and travel around in their Winnebago, he had jumped at the chance. He'd welcomed the return to Mount Bridges to take over the James's 50 acres, he had a plan to convert it to a produce farm. It was top quality class one soil, the best soil that remained in North America. But first he needed to make some money, and so he borrowed his rich neighbor's tractor. He hopped up on the bright blue New Holland and fired it up, admiring the way it blocked out every other sound in the countryside. A commotion to his left made him turn his head. It was his laying hens, squawking and beating a retreat into their hen house, startled by the noise of the tractor. Several of them blinked at him. Sorry, girls, he laughed. A short time later, he was cresting a hill in the field, enjoying the rhythm of the engine, when a grinding noise rose up to drown it out. Thinking that the noise meant something was going wrong inside the engine, Lodi instinctively hit the kill switch. The tractor shuddered to a halt, engine pinging, but the grinding noise grew louder. He jumped down, hunched over, and pressed his hands over his ears. The sound was unlike anything he'd ever heard before, and it was awful. He felt the sound vibrating in his sinus cavities. Tears sprang to his eyes, but then mercifully, it stopped. He knelt down, pressed a hand flat on the ground, picking up vibrations from somewhere far below that waned and stilled and finally stopped. He rose to his full height, dusted off his hands, 
and blinked into the bright sun of daylight, feeling like he'd gone underwater in the sudden silence that the noise had left behind. What in the world was that, he muttered, scratching at his jaw as he looked around himself. There was no equipment working that he could see, no thunderstorm. In fact, to the north over Lake Huron, where bad weather usually rolled in from, the sky looked blue and clear. He turned in a circle, mystified, but there was nothing to explain what the sound had been. He climbed back up in the tractor and finished the field, and when he was done, he stopped to grab the case of beer he'd bought for Donald King as a token of his thanks for letting him borrow it. There was respect in Donald King's eyes when Lodi set down the case of beer at his feet, the grudging kind. King, who would have loved it if Lodi had gone and done a thing like fucking up his engine, because he knew that Lodi James could not afford to pay for the repairs. Standing at the end of King's driveway by the mailbox, Lodi made his thanks. King nodded. Good job on the field, he said, inclining his head toward the neat furrows that Lodi had made with the tractor. Thanks, Lodi said, and the two exchanged a few pleasantries. It was the first time they had done that, where Lodi had felt somewhat like an eagle. But then he went and said something that brought their newfound amicability to a screeching halt. You hear that noise a while back? Sounded like a drill or something, running underground. Damn near made me shit my pants. King's eyes froze over. He stared at Lodi long enough that Lodi felt the grin fall from his face. After a long while, King spoke. I didn't hear shit, and neither did you. King held Lodi's eyes, unflinching, and after a moment, Lodi nodded. Must have been the wind, he offered. Yep, that's right, must have been. King finally broke eye contact, reaching up to adjust the bill of the dusty brown ball cap he wore over his ice blue eyes, and then he hopped and spat onto the ground. Without another word, King bent to pick up the case of beer and then turned his back and walked toward a shop. Lodi watched him go. He knows, he thought. Whatever the cause of that noise was, King knows. Lodi nodded to himself slowly, and then he turned and went back into the house. That concludes the prologue of Strike Boat. On the next episode, we will hear chapter one, starring our main character, Jenna Walters. And I just want to say so long for now. We'll catch you on the next episode. Until then, stay free.